The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. The scripture this morning is from the book of Job, 42nd chapter, verses 7 through 10. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be here with you. And uh, I got the chance a week or two ago to be at a conference where I got to meet some of my heroes, the guys who write the books I read and that sort of thing. And if you've ever met one of your heroes, it's often disorienting, right? Because sometimes you meet them and they're like way cooler than you expect them to be. And you think, man, this person is so cool and they're so important and they're just like really down to earth. And other times you think, man, you're kind of a jerk. (laughs) And I've been thinking you were cool all this time. And then I get face to face and it's weird, right? So we have this disorienting experience sometimes when we, we meet people who we've only read about. This morning we're going to be talking about Job, and I think we need to meet a Job who might be different than the Job we think we've read about. So we read a passage from the end of the book. I'm going to walk us through the entire book to understand those final words of Job, and then we're going to talk about a couple things this tells us, teaches us about how we as Christians should embrace and respond to suffering. Before we get started, let's pray. Uh, Jesus... We ask that you would give us the wisdom and the courage to encounter you and to meet with you. To not talk about you, but to you. To embrace you in a relationship that is bigger and more complex than we had anticipated. God, I pray you'd use your word to invite us to that kind of relationship this morning. Amen. Okay, so the book of Job starts out, in the first two chapters, we meet Job. And Job is introduced to us as blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away evil. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that's about as good as it gets. That's about the highest praise the Bible can give to a human person. And not only does whoever wrote the book of Job tell us that, but then the book zooms into heaven, in the courtroom where God is, and God says the same thing. Have you seen Job? He's righteous and upright. He turns away from evil. What a great guy. Like, man, this is like the greatest dude ever. Okay, this Job guy. But then, in the throne room with God, this figure shows up called the accuser. Okay? And the accuser looks at God and says, Yeah, 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 yeah. Job's good to you, 
But that's because you're good to him. And he raises this question. Does Job fear God for nothing? And this poses the two questions that drive all of the action through the entire book of Job. The first question is, does anybody really have a relationship with God? Or are we all just in it for what we can get? And the Satan, the accuser, says, Job is just in it for what he can get. And he's the best you've got, God. Nobody really is in a relationship with you. And so God allows the accuser to inflict incredible suffering on Job. He loses his children. He loses all of his wealth. He loses his health. His relationship with his wife is in shambles. And this experience raises the second question that will push us all the way through the book of Job, which is, how should people respond to suffering? And specifically, how should we talk to God or about God when we are suffering? So those are the two questions that drive all of the action, and I really want to focus on that second one. How should we respond and specifically speak when we are suffering? And Job, the righteous one, who's more righteous than anybody else on the planet at this time and who fears God and shuns evil, gives us at least three models for how we can speak to God when we're suffering. The first one is the most famous. We actually sing it in that song, Blessed be your name, right? You know that song? Nobody? Okay, all right. It's just me. Anyways, you get to that end, and in that song it says, You give and take away, right? My heart will choose to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job's first response, and I think it's up there. Uh, when Job loses everything, he tears his robe, he shaves his head, he falls on the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. One way that Job shows us we speak about, about or to God when we're suffering is praise. And that's a good way to talk to and about God when we're suffering. The second way that Job shows us that we can talk to and about God when we're suffering is in silence. When Job's friends show up, they sit on the ground together and nobody says anything for seven days. They're speechless. I have never been silent for seven minutes. That's a fact. They're silent for seven days. And and it's pretty clear. Job, the righteous God, that's an acceptable way to talk to God when you're suffering. Silence. But then, in chapter 3, something changes. And we get, essentially, 32 chapters in which Job is cursing and swearing and complaining and lamenting and kicking chairs over and raging against God. And we start going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that a wise, appropriate way to talk to God when we're suffering? Is that a way that we can respond Listen to some of the things that Job says. This is all very unchurchy stuff. Right out of the gate in Job 3, Job curses the day of his birth. He says, why did I not die at birth? Why did I not come out of the womb and expire? He actually curses the night of his conception. Think about that. He says, I should never have come into the world. Curse be the day. Curse be the day. Uh, Job declares that he is righteous. He says, I am blameless. I do not know myself. I despise my life. Do you feel the deep depression there? And despair. Why? It's all one. God destroys the blameless and the guilty. If a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks at the despair of the innocent. Job says, if everybody is sick and dies, God is belittling the innocent. If it's not him who does that, says Job, then who is it? Who else is there to blame? Job says, God has, wise, righteous, upright, turns away from evil, says, God has wronged me and encircled me with his net. If I cry out violence, foul play, 
I receive no answer. I cry for help, but there is no justice. In fact, one of Job's biggest complaints is he declares, there is no justice. Uh, One of my favorite lines, his friends are saying, God deals with the wicked. God does justice. And Job says, how often does God deal with the, the wicked? When do their lamps get stuffed out? When do they pay for the penalty of their crimes? Show me that, Job says. And often these angry accusations aren't just to his friends. They're actually addressed to God himself. So Job looks at God and says, You have become cruel to me. I cry out, but you don't answer. I stand up, and you only look at me. With the strength of your hand, you attacked me. We skip down to verse 25. Did I not weep for the unfortunate? Was not my soul grieved for the poor? Job's saying, didn't I do all the stuff you asked me to do? But when I hoped for good, trouble came. When I expected light, then darkness came. My heart is in turmoil turmoil unceasingly. Later in Job 6, Job will say, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. And throughout... Job begins in his agitation, he begins saying that he has been wronged and the solution is to go to court with God. And so over and over again, basically, I want to meet God face to face. I want to hear you accuse me and I want to be able to defend myself. He looks back to his friendship with the Lord and said, where is God? He's done me wrong. I want to confront him. This goes on for chapter after chapter. And meanwhile, his friends interspersed with all this violent, angry, rageful language from Job. His friends give him their best theological answers they can muster. And they stand on the orthodox, faithful, biblical traditions of the church. And they give Job several different answers over and over and over again. Here's some of the answers they give. Very good theological answers. Number one, nobody's righteous, Job. Right? That's what Paul says, right? All the way back in the Old Testament, they're saying that. Nobody's righteous. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker, says one of his friends. Basically, you don't have a right to complain, Job. You can't be suffering unjustly because everyone is a sinner. That sounds like a pretty good theological response. Another explanation, God punishes evil and takes care of the righteous. Uh, one of the friends says, hey, if your children have sinned against God, he's delivered them into the hand of their transgression. They deserve to be killed. And you, if you start doing right, good things will happen to you. Job 8, 4 through 5. And then a particularly pious answer, good, dare I say, reformed theology here. If God gave you what you deserved, the friends say, it would be even worse than what you're getting. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves, say the friends in Job 11. 1. In other words, yeah, it's bad, but you deserve even worse. You should be grateful for the mercy of God in the midst of your suffering. We're moving, I'm covering like 42 chapters here, so, you know, hang with me. All right, so then they get to the end, and God shows up. The friends and Job can't get started up. God shows up, speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, and he asks them all these beautiful questions, like, where were you when I created the world? Do you know where I store the thunder and the lightning? Do you tell the snow when it goes? Can you take the sea and wrap it up like a baby and say, thus far, no further? Do you feed the lions and the ravens? Where are you? Where were you? Who are you? God says. And at the end, Job says, man, I had heard about you with my ears. Now I have seen you with my eyes. I repent in dust and ashes. And there's a lot of debate about what exactly that means that we can't get into. But what seems to be clear is that Job's response to God is, I withdraw my suit. I withdraw my case. I lay down my charge. Now, 
If the book of Job ended there, it would be very easy to interpret. It would be righteous Job, God-fearing Job, knows how to speak to God when he's suffering, prays in silence. Then he screws up for 33 chapters. His friends correct him with good theology. They aren't quite able to pull it off. So God shows up, right? And Job repents. Case closed. Now you know how to talk to God. He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All right. Amen. Let's go home. But then look at what God says. This gets back to what we just read. When God shows up again to talk to the friends, he says something remarkable that unsettles everything we thought we understood about the previous 41 chapters of Job. Because what God says is to the friends with their pious theology, I am furious with you because you have not spoken about me what is right like my servant Job. Wait a minute. God says it twice. You haven't spoken to me what's right like my servant Chervez. All that theology that was really good from the textbooks, I'm judging you for that. Find some cows and slaughter them and hope that Job will pray for you. Otherwise, you're doomed. And Job, with all that, God, you're unjust. God, you're unfair. God, you're piercing me with your arrows. God's saying, yeah, well done, Job. That was, that was the right way to talk about me. What is going on? What, what could possibly be going on? I think the key to understanding our passage and the entire book of Job is this. Job is the only character in 42 chapters who speaks to God rather than about God. For chapter after chapter after chapter, these theological whiz kids talk about God. But they never speak to God. Job is the only character in 42 chapters who opens up his mouth and speaks to God. In praise, in lament, in rage, in accusation in withdrawing his complaints and worship, but all the time, to God, rather than about him. And actually, I, I, I know this is tricky, and sometimes you feel like the preacher's messing with you when he does this, but I really do think that those verses that are translated, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant, my servant Job has, would be better translated, for you have not spoken to me as is right, as my servant Job has. And the first people who translated the Hebrew, translated it, you have not spoken before me, as is right. So I want to suggest to you the key to understanding how to talk and respond to God when you're suffering is not primarily the content of what we say, but it is to whom we speak it to. Everything that Job says is in the context of a relationship in which he is confronting God with the full range of his emotions and feelings. Uh, Job is not like me on Facebook, uh, and some of you. Even when Job is talking about God, he reserves his worst words for God's face. If you're like me on Facebook, I'm nice to you, and then I get on Facebook, I'm like, ah, here's my real thoughts about you, right? Job doesn't do that. His hardest, deepest, most painful questions are thrown in the face of God. And his talk about God is in the context of that relationship. Okay, so what does that mean for us? What can we learn from about this or from this? Number one, God wants us to wrestle with him in our suffering. God wants us to bring the full range of our emotions and feelings and fears and experiences to him. And not in some pious way simply of casting our fears at his feet, but wrestling with him 
confronting him with the full range of what we experience as human people. As I was reading Job, uh, preparing this sermon, I could not but help remember that bizarre story in Genesis where Jacob wrestles with God all night. And at the end of the night, God touches his hip and wrenches it out of socket. And Jacob says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, Israel is the name for God's people. So what we learn in Genesis is that one of the things that it means to be the people of God is to wrestle with Him. Which means there's stuff to wrestle about. There's pain and grief in your life. There's suffering and injustice that you see. And God wants you to bring not just those facts, but how you feel about them to Him in prayer. That doesn't feel neat and tidy and put together, but sounds like you yelling at Him about what you're experiencing. At least some of the time, that's what God wants from us. God wants us to wrestle with Him in our pain. At points, Job basically accuses God of failing to be just. And even though God will later say, no, 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 I'm just and you don't get it, he still wants Job to bring that accusation. He he wants Job to accuse him of things that he will later say, no, 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 you didn't get that quite right. But I still want to hear from you. Job is suicidal. He is suicidally depressed. And God does not want him to come to here at church and hear something positive and clap his hands and pretend like that ain't what's going on. God wants him to come to him and say, I feel like killing myself and it's your problem. It's your problem, God. That's what God wants from Job. What God tells about him, uh, us what God tells us about himself, it's easy to hear those God speeches as this giant slap in the face of Job. Who are you? Where were you? Can you? And to take that like some harsh father that's like, you know, sort of smacking his kid around. But that's not it. That's not it. What the Bible tells us about God is never to overwhelm us and belittle our pain. No, no, listen to that. What God tells you about himself in Scripture is never to make light of your pain. Ever. It is never to belittle your suffering. It is never to downplay the injustice that you see in the world. God tells us great and amazing things about himself, but it's not to crush us. It's to invite us into a relationship where we do what the people of God do, which is wrestle with him. Like Moses wrestled with him. Like Abraham wrestled with him. Like David wrestled with him. And and, and like Job wrestled with him. So the first thing I want to say to you is that I know that some of you are deep, deep, deep in suffering. With depression, maybe you've contemplated taking your own life. Maybe you are in your line of work or the neighborhood that you live in. You are so surrounded by oppression and injustice, it just becomes unbearable. I mean, you think I lived in Kenya for two years. I think about those people working with the Naivasha Children's Home people and just think, how can you survive Being with kids every day who've been sexually abused and kicked out by their parents. And you're literally starving in some... Maybe you're just overwhelmed by the brokenness. Maybe you have, like, piercing, soul-crushing doubts about God. And people keep acting like it's simple. And like, if you really loved God, you just figure it out. And your doubts are your problem. If you're in any of those places... I want you to know that the book of Job tells us God doesn't want you 
to try to stuff those feelings and questions and doubts down deep and come up with some nice answers. He wants you to get in the ring and box with him. He wants to go toe-to-toe with you. He wants to hear all of what you've got because he's big enough. Number one. Number two, when we are suffering, God wants us to look for and to him in our suffering. God wants us to look for him to find him in unique ways in our suffering. And and there's this two-sided mystery in the book of Job that's utterly horrifying. The one side is that for chapter after chapter after chapter, Job is not running away from God like Jonah. Job is showing up and saying, I'm right here! Here! This is here! This is where I am! I'm there. I'm on my knees. I'm in sackcloth and stuff. Got my theologian friends around me. Where are you? You know? And God, who promises to be with us in, 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 in our suffering, doesn't show up for like 30 chapters. And it's all the more alarming because we know that he knows what's going on because we've seen him at the beginning of the book knowing about what's going on. And when you're suffering with doubt or a terminal illness or a spouse having a mental illness or a child who's died or something really terrible... The book of Job reminds us that one of the deepest, most painful aspects of that is that sometimes it just feels like God isn't there. It feels like he's absent. But part of Job's wrestling with God is to hang his hat on the fact that eventually he will see God face to face. I know that my Redeemer lives, said Job, and I will see him face to face. That's actually probably not, in Job's mouth, a prophecy about Jesus as much as it is about him saying, I'm going to stick around until I encounter my God. I will not go until I have met him. And on the other side of Job's pain, the whirlwind, the suffering, the loss, becomes the context within which Job says, before I'd heard about you, now I have seen you. Now I can move past this suffering back to daily life. So when we are suffering, God doesn't just want all of our anger and pain and rage. He wants us to cling to the promise that he will show up to us in unique ways, even when he feels absent. There's a third point here that I'm basically going to skip, which is that when we're suffering, God wants our suffering to expand our horizons. Uh, The incredible Latin American theologian Gustavo Gutierrez uh, says that when Job begins, he's upset about his unjust suffering. By the end... He is radically, empathetically in touch with the unjust suffering of the whole world. And interestingly, Job, who at the beginning is kind of this bougie patriarch with lots of money and stuff, uh, he speaks the most poetic descriptions of poverty and oppression in all of the Bible. Nobody gets poverty better than Job, except for maybe Jesus. But nobody else in the Bible speaks as eloquently or powerfully about the plight of the poor. Why is that? Because suffering, his own suffering, has opened up his horizons to the suffering of the world. And if you want to think more about that point, you just read Gutierrez's book on Job. It's short. It's phenomenal. We don't have time to talk about it. But that is another thing God wants from us. But finally, uh, last point, and I want to sit here. This one is for those of us who aren't suffering, but who have friends and family and neighbors who are. And it's a hard point. It's a hard pill to swallow. And it's this. Good theology 
that's unwilling to enter the suffering of others is bad theology. In fact, I could have said, and maybe I should have said, good theology that's unwilling to enter the suffering of others is damned theology. Because that's what happens at the end. God comes and says, you are under judgment for the words that you have spoken to my servant Job. Now, to get this, you have to really get that some portion of what Job's friends say really is good theology. And I'm going to prove it to you. Uh, is it up there? G- give me the next slide, Matt. Uh, keep, yeah, keep going. One more. So, uh, th- one of those lines is from Job, from a friend. And one of those lines is from Proverbs. Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Go to the next one. The light of the righteous rejoice, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Yea, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. Now, I bet nobody in here, including Richard, can pick out which one of those lines is from Proverbs, and which one of those lines is from Job. They seem like the exact same thing. And in Proverbs, they are wise guidance for how you should live in God's world, And in Job, they're the things that you say if you want to get smited. (laughs) Job's pious friends say some true things, but it ends up being damned, condemned theology because it tries to walk ten feet above the world. It tries to bypass the suffering of their companion. It tries to avoid the complexity of the world. It tries to simplify injustice and pain and suffering for the sake of a neat and tidy theological system. And when we do that, when they miss mourning, when we miss suffering, when they miss Job, the real person in front of them, they're more committed to a tidy system than they are to God himself and a relationship with him and with his actual world and life in it. This is bad news because you and I are so tempted to comfort people this way. We are so tempted. It's so easy for us to be Job's friends and so hard to join with Job in his lament. Why is it so hard? Job tells us, I am haunted by what I'm about to read to you from Job 6.21. When Job realizes that his friends have nothing to say to him, he looks at them and he says, you see my calamity and you're afraid. Think about that. The suffering of others when you're not suffering is horrifying. Why? Because when I'm not suffering, I can believe that the good things that are going on in my life are the result of my goodness. When my kids are doing well, I can believe that if I just keep being pious and loving the Lord, God will protect them. And they won't get cancer. Or they won't turn away from the faith. And they won't get hit by a car. When, when, when things are going well for me, I don't have to deal with the fact that there are women enslaved in sex prostitution right now all over the world. I don't have to think about that. I don't have to think about when I'm not paying attention to the real world, what my life would be like if I'd been dealt the cards that some of you had been dealt. It's horrifying when we get close to people who are suffering and realize all of a sudden that what they are going through could be what we are going through and there's nothing we have to defend ourselves against it. Job says, this, this thing that has happened to me, think about the death of his children. Early in the book we find out that, that Job was such an OCD about his kids that if he heard they had a party, he would, he would make sacrifices for them because he'd be thinking, maybe they've uttered some impious thing about God and they need forgiveness. So I'll preemptive strike, right? 
Job wanted to live in a world where he could protect his children by loving God. And the bad news is, that world doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. And we so badly want it to. And so we are horrified of other people's real pain. And we shudder when I'm near someone who's really struggling with their faith. It's horrifying to me. I give them easy answers because I want the easy answers to work. Because I'm afraid of losing my own faith. When my son is in a class with a child who has a degenerative disease that is slowly killing her, like it slowly killed her sister... I want some easy answer so that I can believe that I can make my kids safe. And I can't. And it's horrifying. But Job confronts us with the necessity of Christians of either remaining silent in solidarity or better, of joining our friends in the ash heap in lament and complaint and anger and frustration before God. God doesn't just call us into the ring when we're suffering. God calls us to get in the ring with our friends and to suffer with them and beside them in ways that frankly feel almost impious. It's not the case that what the Bible says elsewhere isn't true. God does tell us God works all things together for the good of those who love him. God does tell us it's kind of joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds because they're for the uh, purifying of your faith. Those things are true. They're true for Job. They're true for you. It's just also true that sometimes the righteous suffer. It's just also sometimes the case that we're not told and never will be. It's just also the case that sometimes our suffering doesn't seem to make our faith stronger. It seems to make our faith weaker. And if all you've got is a theology that will explain away people's problems and make God into this big chess player in the sky who's moving people into the worst things they've ever experienced to teach them a little lesson here and there, your theology will fall far short of what is required to talk about God, the real God in the world, the real world. And not the one that we wish existed. Not a God that we wish we could tame. But the God that shows up in a whirlwind and doesn't answer our questions. But meets us anyways. And the problem is we have lost. We, we, have, we have developed all the muscles and habits of saying. You give and take away. My heart chooses to say blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean we are so good at that. We have developed those muscles. We sing those songs in church. We pray those prayers in Bible study. But 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament and complaint. Psalms of God, what the heck, man? Why, O oh Lord, do you sleep? You attack us and we have not sinned, says the psalmist in one place. 40%. And we in the church have lost those muscles. We don't know how to use those words. God has given them to us. You know, I was thinking about it this morning. When, when I'm singing in church, one of my deep abiding joys is having my uh, two sons who, who are pretty good talkers but can't read, and I'm whispering the words of the songs a line ahead so that they can sing them with me, right? And why am I doing that? It's because they are learning how to talk to God. But brothers and sisters, 
if we only give our children and ourselves a theology that floats above the ground, above the actual oppression, above the actual pain of the world, we are setting ourselves and our children up for emptiness in the face of the real world. We are setting them up to leave God when He doesn't deliver on the fake promises that we pretended that He offered. I remember a year ago, uh, last summer, when we were uh, well, uh, going through this summer of hell where all these unarmed black men had been killed and then there were retaliations and police were being shot in the street and we had a lament service at Streets Ministries and one after another of my brothers lamented in front of me and I thought, oh my God, how often have I given trite, stupid, simplistic answers that didn't address any of that? I remember when one of my South Memphian friends called me and said, I've lost my last dollar, I'm going to jump off the bridge. And I got in the car with him, and I remember thinking, I I can't, I got nothing. I haven't learned the words for this. We've got to get with Job. We've got to get in the Psalms. We've got to learn the words that say, I will stand with you in the darkness and call on a God to act that I currently do not understand. And I think as a church, our efforts to do all the things that we want to do will impart stand or fall on our ability to develop angry, suffering ways of talking to God rather than simply happy, joyful ones. So, Job teaches us God wants to wrestle with us in our pain. God wants to meet us in our pain and for us to look for Him in our pain. And He teaches us that when we are walking with sufferers that our good theology has to get in the trenches with people who are suffering. In the end, the hopefulness of Job's journey is that the process works. Most of the lament psalms start with pain and anger, and they end with trust in God. And that's where Job ends. He ends, and it's easy, it's easy to focus on, and God gave him twice as much as he had before, and do all sorts of weird stuff with that. But this is what I want you to think about. Job has ten more children. In chapter 3, Job is saying, Cursed be the night my parents conceived me. Job says in chapter 3, It's a stupid, foolish thing to procreate if the world is like this. It's a stupid, foolish thing to bring children to term if the world is like this. And in the end, Job welcomes his family and has ten more children. Job's wrestling with God does not give him any answers. And if you're suffering, I've got bad news for you. God may not ever tell you why this side of the kingdom. But the promise is that if we get in the ring with him, we come out on the other side limping like Jacob but able to walk in faith in God's world. That's the hope that we've been given. Nothing more and nothing less. Except that we do have something more than Job, and it's embodied in the blood and body of Christ at these tables. See, we sh- Job showed up to God in a whirlwind, saying, who are you? But we show up to the face of God, the Word made flesh in the man Jesus, who does not invite us to lament, but laments with us. Hebrews 5 says he lamented with cries and and, and loud exhortations to God. God has not stayed in the whirlwind. He has taken on flesh. He has entered the injustice of the world. He has allowed the hammer of injustice to fall on him. God is not just... 
looked on the suffering of the world. He has become the suffering of the world. He has embodied the suffering of the world. And he has drunk the cup of that suffering to the bottom. We no longer come to a God who simply wants to get in the ring with us. We get in the, in, in the ring with a God who's already died for us. We get in the ring with a God who knows exactly what it's like, more than any of us ever will, to be an unjust sufferer. We get in the ring with a God who knows what it's like to lose a friend. We get in the ring with a God who knows what it's like to lose a son. We get in the ring with a God who knows what it feels like when your body abandons you and you feel your life seeping out because that happened to him. That's the God we meet at these tables. A God big enough for whatever you're going through if you keep showing up. So as we come to these tables... Come to meet that God, all of that God, who doesn't promise you neat and tidy solutions, but does promise to be there at the other end. And come with the real you. If you're not into the happy, clappy headspace right now, because you're suffering, bring that to Him. He wants to meet you here. He has shared in your sufferings. Come to Him. Meet him here. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the face, the human face, of a strange, mysterious, scary God whose world is not nearly as neat and tidy as we like. But Jesus, we are so grateful. We are grateful beyond words that whatever it means to be human in this world, you have experienced it for our sake. Through death, you've disarmed the one who has held us captive through our fear of death. Lord, our fears of the death and brokenness at work in our world keeps us enslaved. But you free us from those fears by your willingness to experience all of what it means to be us. Jesus, we need you. We need you. We need that God at these tables with us today so that we can bring us, the real us, and not the fake us. God, I pray for those who are suffering with deep doubts, deep depression this morning, knowing that in so many ways, so many of us can't even relate, but you can. God, I pray that you would draw them to your table and meet them here and invite them into the ring with you and make us a church that knows how to bring the full range of our emotions to you trusting that you're big enough to handle them all. We love you, and we cast all of our hopes upon you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.